Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So we're here in the Bradfield Centre, which, let's face it, we're always in the Bradfield Centre recording. But today is a very special occasion. So, James, tell us what's happening. Yeah, we've mentioned this a few times on the show, but today was the final of the Trinity Bradfield Prize. Apologies for the any background noise you might hear, but we've been recording all day in the centre. It's been very buzzy. So this is our competition uh, to spot and support and nurture early stage teams working on science and technology ideas across the University of Cambridge. And today's the final. It's the end of a long process of applications, shortlisting, longlisting, and, and today's pitches from the eight finalists. So talk us through what we're going to hear on this episode. Yeah, so first off, we'll hear from Sir Gregory Winter from Trinity College. So Greg will give us a, a, an overview of the origins of the competition and why Trinity are supporting it and invented the format. Then we'll hear from Richard Turnhill, who's the senior bursar at Trinity, to hear about his perspective and how the Trinity Braffield Prize fits in alongside the Braffield Centre and other initiatives that Trinity have to encourage entrepreneurship. Then we'll hear from all eight finalists. We'll give you short succinct pitches from each of them so you can get a feel for the quality of the ideas that we heard in tonight's final and then we'll wrap up with Kerry Baldwin who was one of this year's judges Uh, we'll get Kerry's perspective on the judging process what they were looking for why the winners were selected and some top tips that you're going to want to hear from Kerry if you're thinking about applying next year So joining us now is Sir Gregory Winter from Trinity College. Thanks for taking the time, Greg. You're welcome. I'd love for you to share the story of how the Trinity Bradfield Prize was first dreamt up and implemented. Oh gosh, that takes me back a while. So let me first explain. It's connected to the Bradfield Centre. So the Bradfield Centre was set up uh, really to try to rejuvenate some of the things going on in the science park. Uh, It'd become clear that over a number of years, the uh, science park had become rather middle-aged. And there are a number of really good companies there, but we needed to bring along younger generations. And I was very concerned that, uh, indeed with my own companies, that the preferred place for them was in fact on some of the other science parks in Cambridge. So in fact, at Babraham and also at Granter Park, we did have one company for a period at the science park and it was very good. But actually the very early stages were much better. The other science parks seemed to be, we seemed to find opportunities there more easily. And so I was very anxious that we had, that we focused a little bit more on those uh, startup companies, which I felt if we could hang on to them, in the end, they would re- help to repopulate or give us options for repopulating the science park and looking looking to its long-term future. Uh, one of the things I noticed was every now and again, you know, a company will consider as it grows, it needs to get more space. Yeah. And what I noticed was that uh, with, for example, our, our place at, uh, at Babraham, as the company grew, you'd suggest to the staff that we might actually move somewhere else in Cambridge. They weren't very keen because they'd actually been attracted to the company. They'd bought their houses in the area. And therefore, in fact, for your 
the key founders and others, you could find it actually wasn't that easy to shift Science Park once you've started. And what I was hoping is if we paid some attention early on to getting the younger companies here, then hopefully they would stay. And we could, we could grow them and we could have a satisfaction of, of having a, a number of companies at different ages. So the Bradfield Centre was intended to try to act as an incubator uh, to bring on those younger companies. And we, first of all, had to get some money. Economically, it's quite a marginal proposition. It's actually much cheaper to put a, up a warehouse and just to rent it out to a large distributor, science distributor or something similar. An incubator requires someone to put in time and effort. And therefore, Rory Landman, the bursar, was very keen that, that we, the college didn't act actively lose too much money doing that and that we managed to get a subsidy for the government for setting up an incubator and that took about two or three years and a number of disappointments but in fact we in the end we managed to we competed and we we got some subsidy for this place which I don't think would have happened otherwise because really it didn't really wash its face so therefore we got our incubator and then my one of my other interests was that in Trinity, we had a number of students who were academically, you know, really very, very good. And in some cases, quite interested in, you know, they were thinking about how could we perhaps do something a little bit more applied, or I've got a good idea, how would I take it forward? And there was really very little connection at that level. So what I felt was, is there a way in which we can connect our students, and in fact, other Cambridge University students to this science park more clearly? So in some senses, when the Science Park had been set up, John Bradfield had engaged with the leaders of industry and he had close personal relationships with, with those people and helped to track them and introduce them to university departments. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those old relationships, some, some still existed, but, but of course people die and move on and we needed to redevelop those relationships. Mm -hmm. And I felt what we really should try and do is to develop relationships uh, with, with the younger cohort of people in the university. So, so they hear about the science park, but what opportunity would you actually get to go and visit it? You know, there's not really an opportunity if you're, if you're doing a PhD somewhere in the chemistry department or biochemistry department, you know, how would you do it? You might try to arrange some summer studentship somewhere, then you'd have to try to make contacts with your supervisor or with somebody else. But it's quite hard work to try to set up something like that. It does happen. And sometimes these places do offer studentships, but the information's dispersed all over the place. And I thought, well, let's try to let's try to get at something which we could bring people together from departments and and hopefully from the college and including college fellows and some of our alumni who could potentially act as mentors to some of these young companies. And what I found was the people who were really most enthusiastic about this were our alumni, because they said, well, actually, that would be a great idea. We'd love to be talking to these young people. And in fact, some of them have given prizes yeah. and some of them have given their time. And we're very grateful to all of them for it. So the prize was set up in a way to act as that focus, because there's nothing like a little bit of money to attract interest, wave a flag, especially when we combine it with the other possibilities of perhaps getting some kind of insight into how the system works, perhaps being located in a building for a few months to get a flavour of how it works, if they really want to. I think getting that exposure to a, a business environment yeah. and that entrepreneurial environment is, is so important. And, you know, 
just this afternoon we spent time with the uh, finalists, yeah. you know, really trying to bring that to life for them so they appreciate the opportunity. But as well as being part of the, the the originator of the idea, you're also the chair of judges. So I think Faye wanted to ask you about your role as a judge and some of those challenges. Yeah, I do, just because I'm in, inherently nosy, I think. Yeah. Um, so what I would like to ask you is not about the judging this evening, because you haven't yet seen the pictures, so that would be slightly unfair of me. Um, as a more general level, what do you look for when you're judging these types of ideas or, you know, some of them aren't even companies yet. Yeah. What do you actually look for? What What are you trying to spot from them? I suppose you're trying to spot something different that's got traction. I mean, quite clearly, it would be great if we produced, as a panel of judges, if we could agree on it, a kind of ranked criteria for all the things we're actually really looking for. But actually, that would start to restrict the kind of applicants we've got. So we're looking, we've got open minds and we look out for anything that in our collective experience is interesting and has potentially got legs if we help it move on. Now, ideally, I mean, I think one key element is that we wanted to see people would be, it wasn't just one individual, um, there was a bit of, there was a team element to it. So we do look for evidence that people can work together. Because one of the clear things in, in certainly the areas I work and in fact most most technology companies, is you're never going to do everything yourself. I mean, you might be able to sort out the science, but you're going to have to have someone who knows something about the business. The idea of this one person who knows everything, and it's very, very difficult to do that. I'm not saying you can't, but I think the probability of succeeding with that is, is much lower than where you've already got some kind of evidence that someone can engage with a team of people. So that's one of the things we look for. But it's really something which is interesting in its particular area. And hopefully is is unique. I mean, obviously, we most of us don't know a huge amount of detail about any one of these fields. But well, we have a chance to look at the entries in advance. And indeed, some of our judges may have seen it before and perhaps part of another competition or perhaps have just happened to know someone who's involved in it. So sometimes information feeds in in that way. But usually we try to look at it on the paper we've got and actually, most importantly, the presentation that we get this evening. So I would be very wary about making judgment purely on paper. Things absolutely change around when you see the people and you hear the presentations. I think it does make a difference. You might say it shouldn't, but actually I'm afraid it does. Because the ability to present yourself on your work in an interesting way and your proposals in an interesting way is a key part of being able to develop a, a small company. And actually, even if it's incredibly clever on paper, if you can't present it, actually, it's, it's not going to go very far. In fact, one of the most difficult things to present are new ideas. I mean, certainly I find in my case that, that trying to present something really radical and revolutionary is very, very hard to present it, even with whatever persuasive skills I've developed, people say, well, that's very interesting, Greg. You know, when you've done a bit more work, why don't you come back to us and talk about it a little bit more? And I think you've got to be prepared also for a level of robustness, the ability to deal with questions without bursting into tears or those kind of things, which sometimes has happened on one occasion when I remember from my dim and distant past, one person got very upset at just being asked some rather direct 
and I guess they perceived hostile questions. It's tough for them, you know, it's tough for the pitching companies, especially, like you say, the ones that are coming from a more academic background and they're not necessarily used to it. But I think that's where the Trinity Bradfield Prize is really good because it gives them that mentorship. So hopefully there'll be there'll be much more polished presentations today. I mean, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and, and share those insights. I, what I'm going to make sure is every applicant from this point onwards listens to this episode to get some insights in terms of what you're looking for and the best way to think about how you pitch and what information to include. So that's been hugely helpful. So thank you. It's a delight to, to try to try to help other people. I mean, in the end, you reach a certain age, you don't get much chance to do anything more yourself. So it's very much, very nice to, to, to help other people. <laughs> So we now have Richard Turner with us, who's Senior Bursar at Trinity. Welcome, Richard. Great to be here. Thank you. So our first question is really about why the Trinity Bradfield Prize is important to Trinity College. So Trinity uh, set up the Bradfield Prize some time ago, but it really captures a lot of what Trinity focuses on. Our, our purpose is around research and education for the public good. Uh, and actually, this is about trying to create ideas and, and, and facilitate the, the development of those ideas into businesses which actually have a real-world impact. There's also really a great opportunity to get together the fellowship at the college, the academics, uh, with the students and with many of our alumni and actually create that network. And I think it's the network that plays a, a, as important a, a role in supporting the ideas coming out of the prize as the, uh, as the money. So you must have quite a communications program with the whole of the alumni and the network and the current students. How, how does that work? How do you keep them all advised on these, these innovative things that you're doing? Actually, one of the things that's impressed me the most since I, I joined Trinity is the level of engagement we have across all of our constituents and, and stakeholders. I actually even add the staff to that category, that people really want to know what's happening at Trinity they're incredibly proud of their association with Trinity and they want to know how they can help. So actually, I think that, that communication has been very much two-way. So we go out you know, through, our, through our website, uh, through emails to communicate with uh, the various constituents about what we're doing and about how we're supporting the college and how we're supporting the local community and local entrepreneurs. But also, we benefit enormously from their input on, on actually how can we do things better over time. And actually, this prize is a great example of that, where actually many of the people in the room tonight are people who have come and supported us and actually are supporting the prize themselves. I'm going to switch to more of a big picture strategic question. So Trinity obviously has the Bradfield Centre as an asset and it has the Trinity Bradfield Prize established. What, what's your thoughts on how Trinity is looking at supporting entrepreneurship moving forward? Trinity has for a long time supported entrepreneurs and been innovative. I'd actually say the creation of the Science Park, the founding of the Science Park, and indeed the, the, the Bradfield Centre are examples of that. It, it does that through our physical property, through investing in the science park, through investing here in, in the Bradfield Centre, and we're continuing to do that going forward. It does that through actually using our network effectively to support entrepreneurs. We, we want the research coming out of the college and out of the university to have the maximum impact, and we can only do that if we can help facilitate uh, entrepreneurs to move forward. And a lot of that's actually about education and networking, uh, so we want to create that environment, and the Bradfield Centre is a great example of how we can do that over time. 
But we also want to think about how we can use our endowment, which supports the college, but to, to invest in some of these uh, ideas. So we're increasingly using the endowment to support venture capital to venture early stage startups. So we see the potential for significant growth. Interesting. Well, appreciate you taking the time to come on uh, to the show. It's going to be a busy evening. Can't wait to see the teams present. I'm looking forward to it myself. Thank you very much. And now let's move into our pitching section. First of all, we're going to hear from Mark Carrington from Oxium Energy. So, Mark, thanks for joining us. It's a busy day for you today. Not a problem, and thank you for having me. Um, why don't you give the listeners a little rundown of uh, what your project idea is? Sure. So I've been working on this technology for just over three years now. So I'm based in the Department of Chemistry. And it started off as sort of a, a, a means of just understanding, gaining a more detailed understanding of how this, this type of battery technology actually functions and, and what actually contributes to its degradation, what inhibits performance in the long run. And through the course of this work, um, we developed such a, a detailed understanding of, you know, the processes as you charge and discharge the battery that um, we stumbled across this one mechanism. And uh, just by simple tweaks to this mechanism, we were able to leverage it to access an air stability and through kind of repeated testing and deeper understanding, furthering our understanding of this, allowed us to access batteries that can now function for hundreds and thousands of cycles, heavy duty operation in air, which there's no, there's no precedent for this work. It's, it's hard to even find literature on this sort of work. And your main application, which you're presenting, um, is um, grid-scale energy storage, Grid-scale right? energy storage, the, um, the sort of defined term or terminology that um, others and, well, increasingly now the UK government is using is long-duration energy storage. And that um, doesn't have a formal definition just yet, but for all intents and purposes, durations of discharge, rated durations of discharge anywhere between four hours and above. Um, some people make a distinction at the higher end of the spectrum, differentiating between 100, 150 hour, which is long duration energy storage, still to ultra long duration energy storage, which is 150 odd hours and more. So, Mark, you say no one's done this before. Is it because they haven't thought about it or the technology's not there? I mean, how how new is this? Because it's abs it's no one's even thought to run the experiments because it's so it's just so part of conventional battery doctrine that if you build a system you're operating at very extreme conditions to be able to cram that amount of energy into such a small into such a small unit that um, you you introduce anything with any sort of reactivity and oxygen is a very reactive molecule. I mean, we all know what happens to a lithium-ion battery. If there's any sort of puncture to it, any sort of defect at all, the results can be catastrophic. So similar sorts of similar sorts of designs have dominated the field and it's just accepted now that you nail down the chemistry you achieve scale it's containerizable it's all sealed up that's just how people do things and people just haven't thought to design something that could operate in air and um again it was it was so blue sky that um we didn't even set out with the with the intention of of, of of looking at this. It's like we we developed this very, very rigorous understanding and on that basis allowed this technology to become a reality. So if it is that blue sky, you must have if this is going to progress, you've got a huge job to actually educate 
people as to why they should be looking at this as a as the alternative. Absolutely, and and that argument is twofold. It's um it's not just a it's not just a matter of of stability and being able to relax some sort of design constraints here. It's also a matter of energy density, like. If the the medium that you're operating in, if you push it water, if you push it beyond a certain voltage threshold, it will degrade to give you oxygen while you cycle your cell. And if your system is not air stable and you're generating oxygen as you charge and discharge above this voltage threshold, you're generating the very means by which your system declines. So there is a fundamental limit. There has been a fundamental limit in this space, in these technologies, since inception, and we have only come up with the means by which these, this speed limit can be broken. And we're the first ones to break the speed limit, and I want to see how fast this thing can go. Brilliant. Well, f- first interview, mind blown, I think is all I can say. <laughs> well, it's, it's always fascinating to meet someone working at, literally at the edge of their field. So uh, we wish you all the best tonight. Thank you. So next up, we have ABL Ma on the podcast with us, who's going to talk to us about where he's up to with Voila. Hello, good to see you again. So would you like to tell us a little bit about where you're up to? Sure. I'm ABL from Voila, and we're a company making food waste recycling easy uh, with our automation, uh, automatic food waste separation technology. Um, so we're currently supported by Innovate UK and the University of Cambridge. And yeah, happy to be here. Okay, so for people who've listened to the podcast before, they'll remember you from the Homerton episode. What's been happening? You know, where, where's the solution moved on in the in the last few months? Sure. So um, we've built a prototype, um, a working prototype. Uh, we're working on the design on the commercial unit. Um, we have set up um, a mini manufacturing workshop to produce the, the prototype. We're at the Trinity Bradfield right now, uh, which is such an honor. We got the grant from Innovate UK and we're basically trying to make it commercially viable right now. You've been busy, clearly. <laughs> uh, you've also got some traction in terms of Homerton College as well are going to start a trial with your units, right? Yes. So in March 2023, uh, we're going to start it in the Homerton College at the new dining hall. Excellent. How many competitions have you entered now then? You've done the Homerton Changemakers competition, you've done Trinity Bradfield. What, what's your kind of experience of different competitions are you seeing a difference in the way they run the outcomes you know what's your perspective as as a multiple uh, entrant so honestly we've only entered three competitions which is Homerton College Trinity Bradfield and Innovate UK and you've been successful in all of them <laughs> so that's the only one that we've, we've tried it's really great so it's actually a strategic move so Trinity Bradfield is more like an academic side but at the same time more towards the commercial side mm-hmm. so we apply for Homerton first because it's more like 80% academic mm-hmm. and only a little bit on the business side so that's mm-hmm. why we went there in the beginning yeah um, and then we went for Innovate UK which is completely commercialized non-academic mm. um, so it re- represents the different stages of our company mm. So I would say um, they differ, but they really help us a lot in different kind of ways. Fantastic. Um, and we should talk about getting one of your units in the Bradfield Centre so we can use yep, it in the cafe. <laughs> We're going to have a discussion later on. Good, we we'll look forward <laughs> yeah. to that. Well, good luck tonight. Thank you. So we're now moving on to big data with uh, our team called With Data. And joining us is Wilang Lum from that team. 
Thanks. Uh, so I'm Liang Lun Lai. Uh, I'm part of the Big Data team. We try to build the model-centric data processing cloud platform that enable non-tech users can do big data analysis to get actionable and insightful uh, knowledge and then to make great decisions. And I'm leading the uh, commercialization of the activities. I was a physician's part by training this modeling for the experimental data. And this process led me to collaborate with my partner, Hong and Zubin. And obviously, I've seen your presentations. The big advantage here is you can move the creation of complex models and queries away from specialist data scientists into more generalized job roles. Is that right? Yes, yes. Because we are in the big data era, so we, we have lots of questions and we just want to make great decisions. And normally we do it by integrating data and do modeling. Yep. But we are the data owner. But the problem is the modeling part is really painful. We need to be a code master mm -hmm. and data scientist and domain knowledge expert, three things altogether and not everyone can do it. But what we want to achieve is that normal people, average people like you and me can do similar things like the expert doing now. And who, who would use it? What would be your target user for this? Currently, it has been widely adopted by the community, which are the developers and the co-masters. Uh, but in the near short-term future, we are, we are doing some pilot projects. And these are the business, for example, from the AI sectors, uh, also from the Department of Health, they want to develop some analytical models. So ideally, in the future, there will be someone that interested to solve their problem by modeling. Yeah. I wanted to go back and ask you about that one in particular because you work with the Department of Health on their modeling of the COVID pandemic, right? Yeah. So, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the, how that came about? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, the idea is that because we wonder what's the most effective way to stop the, the virus from spreading. And so the, the, the research team collect like, data from 41 countries and there's a big chunk of data and it's also in very complex structure. They want to know how to model it in a very short period of time because we want to fight with the virus to save lives. And that's, they come to us because we can reduce the development time of the project greatly compared to other competitors. Mm -hmm. And that's we help them to build the modeling part shorten by 80% of the development time. Right. And at the end, the results suggest that gathering by less than 10 people or like prohibiting schools is the most effective way to, to stop the virus from spreading. And that's the like insightful mm. uh, actions that could take from our modeling. Well, that's a great validation of the technology. We wish you all the, the best of luck this evening. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully I can enjoy the evening with everyone here. Next up, we have Shinru Lee, who is going to be talking to us about GAVE. So Shinru, do you want to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit what GAVE is and what it stands for? Sure. Thank you, everyone. Um, my name is Shinru Lee, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student in engineering department, University of Cambridge. So my business idea is to use a new material, called material, to build a wireless charging system for electric vehicles. The GAVE stands for Granta Advanced Vehicle Electrification. The Granta is actually an ancient name of Cambridge because our technology starts from Cambridge and I want to use this name to represent a VR team from Cambridge. I've read up on it and you're using this novel material. Why is it different to what's currently being used? 
This material is actually a metallic material. This material has three times higher energy density comparing the material we are using right now, called the fire material. And also, you know, metallic is very robust compared to the ceramic materials. Like when you're using a fire material on your electric vehicles, when you count a bump or some difficult road conditions, your system can be damaged because it's, a, it's a, actually a ceramic. But using other materials, actually, is actually a, me a metallic material. It's very robust, me metallic materials. So, like you can have any difficult road conditions, and it's also also the corrosion resistance. So that is why we are promoting our material to using on the electric vehicles. And and to bring things to life for the listeners, you describe a much smoother user experience compared to charging traditionally with a cable. Yeah. So you can just roll up into a car parking space, the car automatically charges, yeah. and everything else is taken care of, like payment, registration, all that kind of stuff. So a significant move forward. Why don't we talk about your challenges to go to market? How many uh, wireless charging enabled vehicles will there be in the next say 20 years and will you be offering like a retrofitted kit to enable cars that don't have wireless capability to to be able to use your your system so right now like there is actually no commercial products for wireless charging system as far as i know right but i know like in the in the maybe in the middle of this year, the world's largest wireless charging company for electric vehicles called Electricity will publish their first product in maybe in the middle of this year. And also Tesla is also working on this wireless charging system. And also as well as other like um, car manufacturers, all of these companies are actually starting to investigate or actually add a, a pilot test of their wireless charging system. So we can foresee like wireless system will be enabled on our electric vehicles maybe in the next two or three years. And you yeah. can see wireless charging as an option for our electric vehicles. So today's charging experiences were very much like a version one. Yeah. And you see every the industry moving towards wireless. Yeah. And your benefit is this unique material, which exactly. is way more robust and efficient. Yeah. than ceramic-based solutions. Yes. Interesting. Well, as an EV owner, I'm excited. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be able to take advantage of this in a couple of years' time. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on and, and good luck for tonight. Thank you so much. Now we'll take a quick break from the pitches to find out everything that's been happening this week in the world of Cambridge technology. In the news this week, UAVs with TTP, Cambridge tech companies making headlines on the LSE, acquisition and growth updates, and two upcoming events. Due to be available later this year, Cambridge Innovation Hothouse TTP is developing a compact, lightweight, and low-cost SATCOM terminal to integrate unmanned aerial vehicles into commercial airspace as part of a program that aims to modernize and digitize the aviation industry. In stock market news, CEO Paul Larby described 2022 as a transformational year for Bango as they ramped revenues by a staggering 59% in the year to December 31st to $32.9 million. Meanwhile, Cyan Conode, a firm specializing in narrowband radio frequency smart mesh networks, raised £5.25 million before expenses in an oversubscribed placing of shares. On the acquisition front, Cambridge Science Park company Bulgin was sold by mid-market private equity investor for an undisclosed sum to US company Infinite Electronics. One of the big Cambridge tech scale-up stories of the past 12 months has been graphene-based electronic devices company Paragraph. 
They announced this week the signing of a large industrial space just outside of Cambridge in Huntingdon, with plans to recruit around 100 additional staff by the end of 2023. Whilst TerraView, a global leader in terahertz technology, expanded by opening a US operation in Delaware. The first event of note has been organised by the newly launched Cambridge chapter of the Founder Institute, introduced to the cluster from its flagship base in Silicon Valley. Poppy Gustafson, CEO of cybersecurity world leader Darktrace, will feature on the first fireside discussion on February the 22nd. And I also spoke earlier this week with Chris Bruce about the plans for the upcoming Cambridge Tech Week. So anyone who's been paying attention will have seen on social media and across other channels that there's a new activity coming to Cambridge this year called Cambridge Tech Week. So I'm delighted to have Chris Bruce with me today to give us a few headlines of what it's all about. Well, thank you, Faye. Delighted to be able to speak to your audience about Cambridge Tech Week. This is uh, something that's been uh, in the gestation for a while, but it's actually going to happen this year between May 8th to the 12th. And it's a week-long festival of technology in Cambridge, celebrating the great achievements uh, in innovation and technology and commercialising that technology that's taken place in Cambridge and the surrounding area. Uh, It's a platform to showcase the research, the academia, the development and the achievements. What is it? Is it a series of different events? Is it a conference? What is it? Both. So it's it's a festival of, of activities from Monday the 8th to Friday the 12th. The core of it, if you like, is a two-day conference which will be held at Hinkston Hall, followed by one day at the Cambridge Union Debating Chamber. We are encouraging a whole series of events, call it fringe events, that others may wish to put on for various topics or interest groups. And we'll be facilitating that, giving some publicity to these fringe events. So the call out is if you want to run your own event, you can do that in and around this this conference so that we can really spread the word about Cambridge and all of its uh, different flavours of activities. And that's great to hear and I expect that Cambridge will, will take that challenge. Um, we're, we're pretty good at running our own little events so um, I, I think that we should be able to come up with a really strong calendar of, of activities for people. So this is open to everybody? Yes, everybody can run a fringe event. We will list these events on, on our website so that people can see the full richness of the of the week now since we announced the week of the 8th to the 12th of may the world changed a little bit and in fact monday the 8th has become a public holiday the conference itself starts on the tuesday and it occurred to us that with it being a public holiday and with uh, everybody off from work and probably more significantly everybody off from school it's an opportunity to make this something that can reach out to the community and and really get children and teenagers students uh, more engaged in technology and some of the cool things that are going on in Cambridge. So we came up with the thought of turning Monday Community Day and lo and behold on Sunday night that's exactly what was termed in the the announcements about how the coronation weekend is starting to unfold. So we're in tune with that and we're looking for partners and stakeholders that particularly Monday when children and students are on holiday uh, they might like to put on events that are suitable for that part of the community and and as we know getting children involved in STEM activities exciting them about it is is an important part of the responsibility of the tech industry and the tech community. 
Absolutely, it's great to see inclusivity and a nice bit of serendipity. So, so how do people find out more, Chris? Well, there's a there's a website, cambridgetechweek.co.uk. So, if you're interested, please contact us through through the website and please spread the word. And that's the news headlines for this week. Now, back to the conversations with the Trinity Bradfield Prize 2023 finalists. So we now move to bacterial diagnostics in an agritech setting, and we're joined by Daniel Bao. Daniel, hi. Would you introduce yourself in the project? Yeah, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Daniel. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in biological sciences, and I'm working on a project where we're trying to develop a bacterial diagnostic method to detect bacterial species directly from the sample. Um, and we're looking especially at a disease called mastitis, which is a big problem for the dairy industry. So I've seen your deck. You describe this problem as being present in one in two every two cows, so fifty percent of the of the population. And your proposed solution takes the time of treatment down from like days down to minutes, right? Yeah. So there, there are multiple layers to the problem. One is obviously that the cow, while it's being treated, is out of circulation and causes a lot of losses to the dairy industry and the farmer. In that case. And there's also a wider implication where you treat with an antibiotic that might not be appropriate because you have to wait for a diagnosis within a couple of days. And that can cause antimicrobial resistances, which could also affect humans. So you're involved in the Trinity Bradfield Prize. What have you found from being involved so far? What benefits have you received? Have you met some interesting people? Yeah, it's been definitely a very interesting experience. I think for me, coming from a more academic background, seeing the business side of it was extremely interesting. And having the opportunity to network with people that are probably more on the business or engineering side is, is extremely valuable. Thanks so much for taking the time for coming on and, and good luck with uh, the pitch tonight. Thank you very much. So we're now moving from agritech back to clean tech, and we're pleased to welcome Mariana from Evaralis. So Mariana, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and then what the company is and what you're intending to do? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy. So my name is Mariana. I'm a postdoctoral researcher from the biochemistry department, University of Cambridge, and also one of the founders of Evoralis. Evoralis is early-stage biotech spin-out from the University of Cambridge, and we have the vision to develop fast-degrading enzymes for plastic. Obviously a huge problem that's facing the world right now, so exciting that you might have a, a breakthrough solution to this. What's the breakthrough that you've, you feel like you've discovered, and how might that be applied? Yes, so together with my colleagues, uh, Josephine and Tomic, we have developed an ultra-fast screening throughput technology to find and also improve plastic degrading enzymes. And we hope with our technology to beat the odds and find the most interesting enzymes that can be applied to degrade plastic. And I've seen, obviously, your presentation. The speed compared to the status quo is like crazy, right? It's like a thousand times faster? Yes, we worked with our uh, workflow quite a lot. So at the speed, we can do a thousand times faster than the current state-of-the-art approaches and also with high sensibility. And that by combining both speed with sensibility, uh, we believe that we have good chance of finding the most interesting enzymes that can be applied industrially. 
So if it is that much faster, is the recycling industry ready for that level of change? Yes, uh, I think the industry needs such a change. So enzymes, they are environmental friendly and they are nature's natural biocatalyst. The thing is, uh, having such a speed is basically increasing the likelihood of finding the most interesting enzymes and candidates that can be applied in the industry. So at the moment, we are aware of a couple of enzymes, for example, for PET, that they can perform the hydrolysis, but they are not efficient enough to be applied industrially. So with our screening platform, we can increase the chance of finding the best enzymes. Amazing. And, and where are you up to now? You know, and what do you need to be able to progress to the next step? Yes, at the moment we are in the seed fundraise. Uh, we are embedded in the university and looking for funds to set up our team and also finding the funds to develop three enzymes for the next two years. So our goal is to, to develop efficient enzymes for PET, polyurethane, that's pure, and polyamide PA. And our vision is to deliver that in the next two years. You're going to be super busy. Well, all the very best with your presentation this evening. Thank you so much for having me here again. It was great to meet you all. So we're now moving into the metaverse, which is exciting. Joining us is Param from Lark Optics. Welcome. Why don't you give us a little rundown of yourself and the uh, the company idea? Thank you so much, James. So I'm Pawn Sresta, CEO and co-founder of Lark Optics. We founded this company last year with Dr. Xinjiang and my supervisor. So I'm originally from Nepal and then I lived in New Zealand and quite a long journey. So yeah, now uh, we are making optics that completely eliminates the problem in the existing AR glasses, which is like a nausea, dizziness, eye strain, like uh, this kind of problems. I mean, this is a hot area, right? We've seen Mark Zuckerberg rebrand to Meta. We've seen Oculus be acquired. Microsoft has a lot of moves in this, this area. So it feels like this is an exciting space to be in. W what makes your invention or your idea so transformative? So exactly, uh, it has been several years. Like It's just like the smartphone. Before smartphone, we were seeing lots of PDAs and other inventions. And now we are seeing similar like Google Glass and lots of others. And there has been huge uh, inventions in the ecosystem and surrounding technologies. But now the one of the last bottlenecks, we call it, in, it remains in optics, which is a hardware problem and it prevents users from seeing image clearly or not having this nausea kind of effects. So we are working exactly on this problem. And it, no one else is working on that at the moment? So there are several universities and companies working on it, but uh, uh, people are aware about this problem and everyone knows about, like uh, at least in the industry, knows about this problem. But now... I think we have been working on this for five years and we have patented technologies. And so so I think we have some uh, little bit of advantage on this. And that, that was kind of going to be my next question. As James said, it's, it really is very timely at the moment. So how far are you off going to market with, with your product? So we are now developing, we have proved on our concept with proof of concept. Now we are doing a user study with Jaguar Land Rover, um, so scientific user trial. And um, we, we also gained some traction in terms of we are working with other companies like Porotech and others, um, big names. 
And in terms of going to market, probably we are three years away from the market. In yes, so we are developing demonstrator, and then we will be developing the. At the moment, we are finalizing our demonstrator, but then we will be making the minimum viable product, uh, and then we will be in the market. And this is what's so exciting about the competition: we get to see very early technologies three years before anyone else does. It's very exciting. We hope tonight goes really well for you and uh, and the best of luck. Thank you so much. It has been really, really um, great honor to be here uh, connecting with you and connecting with all the other participants. And it's a really great place to be. I mean, the networking, the exposure to great minds, it really helped us to create the momentum and do almost impossible things, actually. <laughs> Fantastic. So last but not least, we're pleased to hear from Stasia Stankovic, who is listed very impressively in Forbes as one of the 11 women with the highest influence on women's health and menopause. So Stasia, welcome. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit, if you will, about Avartix. Thank you very much, guys, for, for this opportunity. So uh, my name is Tasha. I just completed my PhD in reproductive genomics at the University of Cambridge, where we are using the power of uh, both uh, big data science as well as different state-of-the-art cell engineering and animal models to better understand what is the underlying biology and causes of various reproductive conditions in women. What is it that you're you're doing? What is the solution that you're taking to market? So as we know, and probably as you know the best, women's reproductive health has been neglected for many years now, right? And this has led to a lack of innovative solutions when it comes to uh, prediction of female fertility, family planning, our inability to plan the family, but also um, reproductive therapeutics to either treat different diseases or have a prevention or kind of boost the IVF, for example, uh, which is today used by many, many women as they tend to prolong or delay the motherhood these days. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to help women understand better their fertility, firstly by developing different prediction opportunities for them to know until when they will be fertile and at what age they will go into menopause. But more importantly, we are developing a tool or a screening platform for the drug target discovery where we combine the power of uh, data science, as I mentioned before, as well as state-of-the-art cell engineering models to screen the targets and kind of prioritize them and identify novel targets so that we can start making uh, next-generation therapeutics for female reproductive conditions. And so you'll be working directly with the pharmaceutical companies. Exactly. So we will be doing just the kind of preclinical or the first stage of the process where we will be utilizing our knowledge and our scientific excellence to help them identify the targets. These targets will be then sold to them for them to continue the development of uh, actual drugs for uh, female reproductive conditions. And obviously, I've seen the presentation already. Really impressive. I'm right in saying this is a world first, right? You're the world first team working on this. 
There are a few other themes, however, they're not addressing the specific aim that we are addressing. Um, what I mean by that is they don't have the high throughput ability to screen these targets. So they're either focusing on a um, single target and they're trying to develop the drug out of it. And secondly, they're not using the combination of data science and uh, cell engineering. So we very well know that, uh, firstly, human genetics uh, improves um, uh, the drug development by two to six-fold, which is super important for pharma companies, right? It decreases the time for drug development, reduces the cost significantly. So if we combine the data science and the power of data science with cell engineering, we're actually not only saving costs, but we are improving their success to have a robust and well-developed drug for reproductive conditions. And you're prioritizing IVF to begin with, and you're, you're already seeing significant improvements in the success rate of IVF, right? Exactly. We very well know that um, more and more women are now utilizing these uh, type of assisted reproductive technologies because they either want to kind of prioritize their careers, they want to become mothers later on, but uh, there is a big clash between what kind of social aspect can bring to us or what our wishes are. For example, I want to become a mom at maybe around 30s, but I have no clue to know at what age I will become infertile. Maybe I am one of the candidates for early menopause where uh, I get menopause at 30, right? So what do I do then with my fertility and family planning? So uh, one of the reasons why we target IVF first is that the success rate of IVF is not that huge in comparison to how much we use it, right? And secondly, the success rate is stagnating, especially in women over the age of 35 and 40 as we get older, right? So if we find a way, and we did find a way with uh, certain candidates that we are testing to improve the success rate of this procedure, we will be therefore enabling more and more chances for a successful pregnancy in women. So this is one of the applications, but obviously we plan to transform and adapt this tool for other reproductive diseases as well. It's really exciting, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I've seen you, you know, practice pitch, really impressive. I'm sure you're destined for huge things. Um, so thanks for taking the time and good luck tonight. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for this opportunity. So the, uh, the Hellings Prize, uh, we're going to award to Moala and Abiel Lahr. <laughs> Then we have the second prize, which we decided to award to Oxomium for the battery. So the first prize, it was actually for rapid bacterial diagnostics for cows by Daniel Bull. So, Kerry, we've pulled you away from the, the very noisy networking that's happening, which might be audible on the recording. Uh, so thank you. You were one of tonight's judges. Tell us about your reaction to the competition in general, the, the quality of applications, the pitches you saw tonight. The quality of applications this year has been extraordinary. We've had real range. We've had a lot in clean tech, a lot of companies really with purpose behind them. But we've had such a range of excellent technologies very clear applications. It's just been a phenomenal process. And they were all really strong presenters as well, weren't they? I think they were coached well. 
that's the beauty of this prize. So when we get to that shortlist, uh, they get to work alongside the Bradfield Centre and a lot of the coaching comes in at that point. And of course, they will continue to all have access to that fantastic coaching at Bradfield. But you could see the improvement from the first time you sort of heard the pitch all the way to, the, to this evening and the work that Bradfield have done has just been incredible with the team. They really presented well. We make our judges work hard because you've got a real diversity in sectors and applications and technologies. But I kind of feel like that's one of the real attractions of the competition. It's so open. Um, how, do you, how do you approach that as a judge? Well, what's so fantastic is we all come from our different perspectives. So I'm probably looking more at that translational, the sort of how are we far from commerciality? Is it a viable proposition? Do the metrics even start to stack up at this point? Others are obviously looking at the pure science and the patents and is their application going to be more protectable? Or And they're looking at a completely different. And then we all come together and we're able to sort of talk through what we think about each of the applications and which one overall suits the eligibility of the Trinity Bradfield Prize. And, there, and, and, and the metrics that you're looking for. I was in the room with you as we were deliberating and actually there was quite a quick agreement on who the contenders were from the eight that we saw tonight. So I think that shows that there's obviously good alignment with the, the criteria that we're judging against, but also I, I just think, you know, there were some real standout presentations tonight and I think, you know, some of that came through. There were standout presentations, and uh, and as uh, Sir Greg uh, said earlier, you know he he was saying that this year we had to say how viable are they as businesses, not just how fantastic are the patents and the PhDs and the technologies behind, which all of them had fantastic uh, technology. We then had to sift by saying which ones are closer. Yeah, and you to, made a really good point in that conversation, which I just want to make sure everyone hears. <laughs> you know, there's no reason why you can't come back next year or the year after and just bring some progress, and you'll win. Quite right. That's really, really important. And you see that in everything that I do as venture capitalists. You may go to a fund and say, look, this is where I'm at at the moment. But then you come back six months later and you come a year later. You just keep trying. All of these teams are going to go into business. And, and as Sir Greg said in his speech this evening, you're going to get setbacks. You have to keep on trying. So the deliberations are over. So should we share with everyone listening who the winners of the £5,000 prizes were first? Yeah, so super pleased for Mark and at, at Oxonium. Really, really excited. Uh, great technology there. And we're really excited to see where he takes that technology in the future. Really impressive pitch as well. And then the Hellings Prize, really pleased to announce that a bill from Voila has won that one. Really exciting. Lots of commercialization. He's really gone out in the market and tested it with all his customers. And I really like to see that early on. So super pleased for him. And then our winner is Daniel from Rapid Bacteria Diagnostics. Really exciting project here. And he's commercializing as well. And he's going to transform a market, but a simplistic technology for farmers. And, 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 and I think what's so exciting about this is where else can this platform go? Where else can his technology be used? Uh, and I think it's revolutionary. And again, with contracts. And what's going to be so super is he's going to be trialing it in the Cambridge University farm, which is just going to be fantastic. So really look forward to staying close to his progress. So we will definitely uh, recommend that uh, future applicants listen to this episode to get an idea of what to do. What would your advice be to them? Definitely give it a go. And my one advice would be when you submit your application, 
Make it simple. Make it sure that the judges can really understand what you're trying to do. This isn't your um, PhD submission. This is, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing. How it's going to transform a market. How we all came together. This is why it's protected. And just keep it really simple, but give me the detail and show me that you really have started to look at the market and why customers and industries will want your solution. But give it a go. It's a great process and uh, it's been a fantastic evening as well. So if you, even if you don't get onto the shortlist, come along to the evening as well. It's great. Really vibrant. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time out to judge. And it's not just tonight. You will see part of the shortlisting and longlisting. There's a ton of work behind the scenes. Very much appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So it's 9.22 and James has just said he should really be at home in his pyjamas. I'm not sure if he actually wanted me to say that, but it's too late. I've done it and we're not edited it out, okay? Um, so that's it. I mean, it's a wrap. That's been a full-on episode today, but really enjoyable. And again, such a great showcase of, of initiatives that are coming out of the university. So tune in next week. We'll be joined by Andy Neely, Senior Pro Vice-Chancellor of Enterprise and Business Relations at the University of Cambridge. And I'm pretty sure he'll be telling us many more ways that the university supports entrepreneurship and the broader business and residential community. So tune in next week. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.